This is The Story of Lata from Outer Voices. I'm Stephanie Geyer-Stevens. Where we're going to is where Lata was born. Lata is the culture hero of most islands through the Pacific, the Polynesian first person who built and sailed voyaging canoe. The Solomon Islands stretch for thousands of miles across the South Pacific. In the olden times, Polynesian voyagers sailed tepuke canoes between these remote islands. The knowledge of how to build these canoes is dying out, but there's a growing need for transportation that doesn't depend on fossil fuels. Outer Voices travels to the Solomon Islands to talk with the women who are stepping out of their traditional roles to do their part to preserve tradition. Going on the tepuki, we women shared the work with the men who would raise the mast and hold the sheets, and we would tie the knots, tie up the rig. I know how to do all that. Every culture has its idea of how to live in balance. No dark without light, no woman without man. For the Polynesians, living in balance isn't just a good idea. It's a person with a name. For the Polynesians that live in the Solomon Islands, that person is Lata. And Lata is so much a part of how they see themselves that he's their grandfather. And he learns how to do everything from nature and with nature. Lata is not the first person, but he is the first person to invent a voyaging canoe. This is the story of Lata. My grandfather, Lata, from generations before, he used to take his axe over to Tahua and sit on a stone chair. And he saw people going together to build a canoe, a canoe called a tepuke. And he sat on a stone chair and watched them go into the bush. While Lata was sitting there on the chair, he watched the people take their axe and together they went into the forest. And he watched them do this so he went and picked up his own axe and he followed them into the forest to see what they were going to do. I was very happy when I went out sailing with the Puke. It was very enjoyable, and the customary ways of doing things were so beneficial to everyone. The Pacific Ocean was like a highway for the ancient Polynesians. It wasn't an impossible barrier. It was a path from island to island. In those days, life on an island was not isolated, as long as you knew how to sail. And no one in the history of humankind knew how to sail better than the Polynesians. If you got the canoe, in our society, you have to have a canoe. Because if you don't have a canoe, you can't eat the fish. You can't get money. The Solomons are a chain of islands, 922 of them, sliding southeast across the South Pacific, starting at Papua New Guinea and ending thousands of miles later at the Fiji Basin, So they're spread out over about 4,500 square miles of open ocean in the South Pacific. Tepuke, with the big ocean-going vessels that created a lifeline among many of the islands. This was the main way of communicating between the islands at that time. There were no other forms of communication. The foreign ships were not regular. So travel was by Tepuke. People who live on the ocean with its tides, currents, and wind measure their lives by change. Old ways grow into new ones. Life in the Solomon Islands today is different from the days of Tepuke. Modern boats, which run on diesel fuel, were introduced to be a better way to keep the islands connected. But today, Solomon Islanders find themselves navigating the modern world guided by their old ways. Tomotu province is the most remote corner of the Solomon Islands. Look at Google Earth 
at about 10 degrees south and 167 degrees east. You won't even see these islands at first. Zoom way in. There they are, coral atolls and volcanoes scattered through the vast open stretches of deep blue sea. Pretty far away from the rest of the world. In Tomotu province, the old people who grew up with these traditional Tepuke sailing canoes still remember how central they were to the community. Jocelyn Sale is over a hundred years old. Her family once made and navigated Tepuke canoes. In the old days, my husband and I would go out sailing very often on the Tepuke canoes. We were trading. We'd bring nuts and fish and things from our island that people on other islands would want. People would share things. They didn't have to go to market. They had partners on other islands. And when they would arrive at an island, they would go directly to the house of their partner. The same thing when that person would come to their island. So they had trust and could share with each other. But Tepuke travel was not just about buying and selling goods. It was an essential part of every social relationship, from birth to marriage to death. When the firstborn child was born to a family, there would be a big sing-sing. And they would take the umbilical cord from the child and they would put it in a net. And they would go out in a tepuke and they would put this umbilical cord into the mouth of a fish and let it go. It's easy to romanticize the life of people in the olden days. But then as now, life befell them and people didn't always have answers. Life wasn't always good. In the time of the great flu epidemic, two tepuke canoes left from Pileni Island and sailed to the Duffs. At this time, the tepuke canoes were going back and forth from Pileni to the Duffs all the time. But this time, when we approached the Duffs, we noticed a terrible smell. And when we got ashore, we could see that people were dying. Almost all the people there were dying. And the people that had enough strength were digging holes. And they would put one body in, and they would fill it up. And they would put another body in, or even more, until the hole was full. And then they would dig another hole and drag still more bodies in. And one of the people on the Tutepuke that I was on was a man named Gopala. Gopala saved me by giving me traditional medicine, which he rubbed on my body. This protected me from being killed by the disease. But later on, Gopala's wife went to get betel nut. When she got back, Gopala had already fallen ill and died. He was already dead by the time she got back, so they buried him there too. As soon as the weather allowed, we returned to Pileni with Tepuke. As we came ashore, we found the people were having a dance on shore. One of the all-night dances. And we had to tell people about the big epidemic and what was happening at Duff's. We had to tell people that Gopala had died there, at Duff's, and that they had buried him there. It's an old sailor's superstition that a woman on a boat is bad luck. But tell me exactly how you'd go about settling new islands without them. Polynesian women aren't known to have sailed alone, but they were definitely voyaging alongside the men. Jocelyn's daughter, Joanne Kahala, is herself about 75 years old. She also remembers sailing to Puke. Going on the Tepuke, we women shared the work with the men. For example, when the canoe needed bailing out, I would take the baler and go down in the hull and bail it out. And when it was time to raise the mast, 
the women would help raise the mast. We would raise the mast and hold the sheets, the haha, and we would tie the knots, tie up the rig. I know how to do all that. The Polynesians knew the ocean as well as they knew themselves. These gifted navigators read every sign in the wind, the waves, the currents under the waves, and overhead, the clouds, the birds, and the stars, in order to find their course. Every wind had a name, and every current. And where a wind converged with a current, that had a name too. One of the signs that they navigated by that's unique to this region is called Talapa. And while anthropologists have recorded it, there's no good scientific explanation for what's happening. Talapa is the light in the sea, about two or three yards under the water. It flashes. It really flashes. Talapa looks like a laser beam that shines off the coast of an island at night. But navigators often look for it under the water, where it's reflected. Every island's tilapa is unique, so they can tell which island they're off the coast of by looking at the tilapa, several miles offshore. Paul Vaya explains navigating with tilapa. You have to, careful because tilapa you have to look very carefully for tilapa. Then you know, oh, the island must be there. But you have to be careful because each island has its own tilapa. Like Matema has tilapa, Pigeon Island has tilapa, Nimbanga Nendi has got tilapa, and Reef, it has tilapa too. So you have to be careful. You have to know, because if you get tilapa from Nimbanga, this means you are near this island, not another one. So Lata cut the tree and he made the te'ama. And he lashed the te'ama to the main hall. And he put everything together for the tepuke. And he waited for a big rain. And when the big rain came, there was a flood. And the tupuke came all the way down to the sea, riding on the water of the flood. So when the rain was falling, and then the flood began, and the tupuke began to slide down in the water and towards the sea. It was nighttime, and it was dark. And the tupuke came down all the way to the sea, and Lata tied it to some stones that are like mooring stones, and they were just near the island of Tahua, between the island and Manaiva. The Polynesians did not create isolated societies throughout the Pacific. They created relationships among island groups. This interconnectedness was the basis for creating a sustainable society. When I was young, my father had a tepuke, and he used to sail to Lata, and I used to sail with him. Janet Lonamaha was born on the island of Pileni, married a man from the Duff Islands, and now lives on Tahua. That's how I arrived here. My father brought me here for a visit one time, and then he sailed his tepuke back to Pileni. Then when I came to be married here, he also brought me here in a tepuke and dropped me off. Handcrafted tepuke canoes, made from local materials, were central to maintaining life itself for these islanders. So owning a tepuke gave a person status in the community. After this break, we'll sail to the Solomon Islands. You're listening to the story of Lata from Outer Voices.
Welcome back to the story of Lata from Outer Voices. Steve and Cheryl Kornberg are sailing the Gershon II, a 50-foot yacht with a steel hull, custom designed to withstand the extreme sailing conditions of the South Pacific. Whoever came up with that name, you'd think they'd never sailed on it. I have to turn to starboard, huh? The Gershon II docks on the north end of Vanuatu. Take it forward from the cleat. We're sitting in the cockpit, talking about the trip we'll be taking to the Solomon Islands. Steve shows us a chart of the area. Well, this is a chart uh, that shows uh, an area from Fiji to Australia, Solomon's and New Guinea, south to northern uh, New Caledonia. So where we are right now, according to this weather facts, up here in Luganville, basically you're looking at 25 to 35 knot winds out there today, which is one of the reasons that we've um, been uh, waiting a couple days for the strong winds um, to go by. And in, in Fiji, they call this situation of a strong high creating reinforced trades a uh, bogeywalu. Modern navigation is incredibly high-tech. GPS is revolutionized, you know, right. cruising. You just hit a button and it tells you where you are and you plot it on a chart and that's where you are. Navigation has changed a lot in Steve's time. We started sailing, there was no GPS, there was no sat-nav. You only had a sextant. That's why not that many people went to sea. You had to learn how to shoot stars or the sun and fix your position with a sextant and a timepiece. And when you went through the islands, you had to take bearings off of each point and continually cross them and do these, you know, hand bearing compass things. And navigation took up the most of your time. And then even then, you only found out where you were maybe once or twice a day. And the rest of the time, you were keeping track of your course and speed to estimate where you were. Meph Wyeth and Terry Causey are on the Gershon as well. They worry that traditional skills like celestial reckoning, which is navigating by the stars with a sextant, is no longer being taught to new sailors in the Western world. Is celestial still a requirement for getting a captain's ticket? No. In fact, they've dropped it as a course in the Annapolis Navy Academy. That's scary. Yeah. It is scary because it's a fundamental knowledge. It should be basic training. Yeah. We're going to lose it in our culture just like the Polynesians lost exactly. navigation in their culture. Exactly. Steve may contemplate the olden days of navigating with a sextant, but he has a great respect for the truly ancient art of Polynesian navigation. The Polynesians have always dead reckoned their longitude. Until they developed a timepiece, nobody could determine their longitude at sea. You learn that from the Southern Cross is vertical, and the distance between the top star and the bottom star is equal to the distance between the bottom star and the horizon, you were on the latitude of the Big Island. And if you've come up from Tahiti and kept to the east, hopefully, when that southern cross gets to that point, you turn left. And certainly it worked. The canoe people stay up all the time. I mean, they keep track of their course and speed in their mind, and they have to adjust in their mind. They learn how to keep their course and the wind can change and the waves can change. They don't have compasses, so how do you keep on a course to know where you're going? And that's their skill, and they definitely do it. The Tapuki canoes themselves were perfected over time to ply the open ocean. Calling them canoes might conjure up the wrong image for what these beautifully engineered and graceful vessels were really like. When you see the thing face on, it's a perfect delta wing shape, and it's extremely aerodynamic. Apparently the, the shape creates vortices which draw the wind off the top of the sail and thus enable it to, to move forward with much more thrust than an ordinary sail. And if you talk to the chief about that, they understand that principle perfectly well. That They have their own way of describing it. But it's a very scientific and well thought out design and highly aerodynamic. And it works the same way as the the wing on a stealth bomber, basically. Steve's own keen interest in traditional navigation is his incentive for making this voyage. 
I hope we get to learn something about their system of navigation. I think that would be really interesting, especially to compare it right. with other things that have been uh, written and done. Right. I think we can learn about ourselves by learning about what the ancients did. And um, maybe we'll learn that we're regressing instead of progressing. So Lata went behind his people and they were walking on a trail to the forest. And by the side of the road, there was a bird called Teumbe. And the bird had a leg that was tangled in a vine and it couldn't get away. It couldn't fly or move. So when this line of men with their axe walked by, the bird asked the first person, Oh, please, would you free my leg from this rope and set me free? And the first person said, Oh, why don't you ask the next person? I think they might do it for you. And then the bird saw the next person come by and asked the same question. Oh, please, would you help me to free my leg? And every person in that group, maybe 10 people, they said, oh, ask the next person. And then along came Lata, following the group, and Teubi Bird said, please, would you free my leg? And Lata said, oh, yes, definitely, I'll free your leg. And so Lata freed the leg of the Teubi Bird. We sail for three days and nights from the northern coast of Vanuatu. On one side of us is the North Fiji Basin, and on the other side is the Coral Sea. According to the chart, we're headed for the island of Taumako. The days are gray, and the ocean is rolling. Ten-foot swells in the day, and then at night, gales blow, and the swells rise to 15 to 20 feet. It's July winter in the South Pacific. The wind and the water are still warm, but the sky fades in and out of sun, slate gray to blue to clear sparkling light, then back to gray. We don't see any other boats, though we do see frigate birds from time to time. Other than that, it's just six of us on a big sailboat. It's so quiet here. On the third morning, the sun below the horizon turns the flat ocean pink, and we see land, a volcano rising straight out of the ocean. Lights on a little fishing canoe about a mile off the starboard side, the first boat we've seen in three days and nights of sailing. As we anchor, canoes start to come out over the reef towards the boat to greet us. About five feet, Steve. Can we put that on that ballard over there? Kahula, Kahula, Gershon 2. Yes, is that you, Mimi? We're now within 100 miles of our destination. But we can't complete the last leg of the journey to the island where I hope to talk with Polynesian elders and American anthropologist Mimi George. So far, CB radio communication is as close as we're getting. Mimi, we're getting stepped on. Let's wait a few minutes. The problem seems to be that the custom official who needs to stamp our passports is still in the capital city, hundreds of miles away, because there are no boats running to Tomotu province. Uh, Mimi, Mimi, Gershon, too. Uh, Gershon, Gershon, Kahula here. Uh, how do you read me? Oh, you're barreling in nice and clear. How do you read me? Uh, just perfect, thank you. And how are you all? Over. Uh, we're all fine. Uh, we're in Lata. Uh, we had a few-day delay for that strong uh, Bogiwalu weather that we had, the real strong trade winds, and uh, we ended up having a real nice trip, and we got in at dawn this morning. The problem, of course, is clearance. Over. Uh, yes, yes, it is a problem, and have you learned the solution yet? It turns out that the boats aren't running because of a lack of diesel fuel. Yeah, Roger, uh, MEF got the letter, and we did talk to the police guy who um, said that uh, the immigration clearance people could come in on the plane on Saturday. It takes five days to straighten out the situation. 
And we finally head for Talmaco. When we arrive, Mimi's there to greet our boat and help us across the island. Where we're going to is, is, is where Lata was born. Lata is the culture hero of these islands and most islands through the Pacific. The Polynesian first person who built and sailed voyaging canoe, period. So this is it. Is there any way to get to the beach here and walk to the village? Yeah. Yeah, you, we, we have to work with the tides, that's yeah. for sure. But we're willing to, you know, there are people here who are very willing to, to help. Um, if it involves a motor canoe and outboard, then they've got to yes, buy the nice. petrol. Yeah. We've got to provide the petrol. So anyway, we'll go there in a canoe, but we might go back in conditions where we have to get out and walk around at times, yeah. and. It's good that you have dry bags. Bring a flashlight if you have it. If not, we have lanterns. Arriving here is like nothing I have ever experienced. Everyone from the village is here to greet us. Everyone wants to know who we are. We're special simply because we're new. I don't know if I can describe how profoundly their real and genuine warmth affects me. Over the next few days, I get familiar with my surroundings. Rice, breadfruit. Life on the island moves with the slow rhythm of the waves on the shore. Children hunt for fish and bats with homemade bows and arrows. Teenagers play ukulele when their chores are done. Our friend May shreds a coconut to make pudding, while the neighborhood women weave thatch for a roof and chat with mouthfuls of betel nut. <laughs> May's husband guts fish, a huge catch nearly filling his canoe. Onshore, an old man carves a canoe paddle while children gather to watch. So after Lata freed the leg of the Te'ubi, the Te'ubi asked Lata, Where are you going? And Lata said, Oh, I'm just following these people. They're going to make a canoe, and I'm just interested to see what they do. And the Te'ubi said, So you want to make a tepuke? You want a canoe? And Lata said, Oh yes, I would like a tepuke. And Te'ubi said, Oh, would you like to cut a koilo tree for your tepuke? And Lata said, Oh yes, I would like to do that. And the Te'ubi said, Well, I will help you do that. I will show you how to build the tepuke.
I'm starting to get why I had so much trouble getting to this corner of the Solomon Islands. It's part of a pretty fundamental problem being faced by everyone here. While small canoes are still in use for short island hops, traditional long-distance voyaging canoes, the Tapuke canoes, are no longer being built, and hardly anyone knows how to sail them anymore. So as Western influences took hold, the idea was that modern ships and planes would bring the Solomons into the 21st century. But the old Tepuke ran on wind and wave power. Modern boats need diesel fuel. And because of geographic isolation and a subsistence lifestyle, the Solomon Islanders have never developed a strong cash economy. And so the government boats, which carry supplies and people, to and from the outlying islands are sporadic, unreliable, and rare. What happened to Joanne recently is a perfect example of this problem. Oh, Joanne, my granny, she's been here for about four months here in town. That's Joanne's grandson, Eddie Cooper. Eddie and his sister Frida live in the capital, far from Tomotu province. Several months ago, Joanne traveled from her home island to visit her grandchildren. She only meant to stay there for a few days, but ended up stuck in the capital for four months, unable to get home, because there was no boat to her island in all that time. And she always asked me, when will the ship go up to Temut province? Eddie and Frida can't get back home to Tomotu province very often themselves. I'm living with my uncle here in Honiara because I'm doing my studies here. I have to live with somebody close to the uh, center. For our students, we have a problem with it because, you know, we have to go to a place where it's quite close to a learning center to continue with our education. It's because of transport difficulties. There's no ship available, so... I only go once a year, that's in December. The irony is that the islanders are probably less able to travel and trade between the islands than they were in pre-modern times. People try and get petrol where they can. Ben Hepworth was born and raised in Timotu province, along with his brother Ross. Here at the dock, he's finally filling his fuel cans. We actually haven't had a petrol run to the reef islands since um, back in May, though there have been ships who have had a few drums of petrol on board. Uh, where the airfield is at Lata, they've had fairly regular petrol run, but they're 45 miles away from us and the petrol comes in 44-gallon drums, not easy to transport those drums from there to here. And then, you know, occasionally we go six to eight weeks without a ship. And there's nothing very regular about it. <laughs> this problem is not just simple economics. We'll find out more after the break. You're listening to the story of Lata from Outer Voices. You're listening to the story of Lata from Outer Voices. 
Joanne Kahala and Jocelyn Saleh explain the connection between the cultural survival and the economic survival of their people. These days, nearly everything is related to market, money, cash. It's a very expensive way to live. So my big question is, what's going to happen to these young people who are growing up? They don't have the experience that I grew up with, going back and forth with Te Puke. How to go back? The question is who will start to follow the old ways since the old ones who led us, who helped us, are all dead. And even those of us who were born into it, but just before it changed. We all ask that question. Who will do it? Who can do it? How can we do it? When Latepuki were going back and forth, it was a time that was very good for everyone. So, how can it start again? How can we go back to that? Jocelyn and Joanne tell me that they believe that rebuilding the Tepuke canoes and reviving knowledge of traditional navigation might be a solution for their people. There is, in fact, a project underway whose goal is to revive ancient Tepuke sailing and the Solomons. The Vakatomako project was started by another woman, the American anthropologist Mimi George. They did have technology that was perfectly adequate. And they had it long before Europe went and discovered the Pacific for themselves, because people were there 60,000 years before the Europeans got there. And they had to get there by boats over pieces of water that they couldn't have drifted there. Mimi has been traveling back and forth from her home in Hawaii to the Solomons, raising money and organizing the Vakatelmako project. The Vakatelmako project aims to train a new generation in building, sailing, and navigating traditional Polynesian voyaging canoes using traditional Polynesian methods. The uh, people of Taumako are Polynesians, and their paramount chief asked for some help from the outside, which he needed to get things going so that he could teach a new generation from his own vast knowledge. And my role has been to assist paramount chief Kavea in this project and to do research and documentation of the Polynesian methods and to basically assist the young people of Taumako to do their own documentation. There's so much we can learn about the world and about ourselves with this depth of traditional knowledge. You know, it's a fact that you can navigate based on modern information without instruments. But the difference is that when somebody shows you how to do that, who has thousands of years of knowledge behind them, the knowledge is much deeper, much more rich and safer, and you can learn a lot more. So which way is more interesting? John Tealava is the grandson of Basil Tevake, a famous navigator. He's explaining to me how to carve the walls of a small canoe. You have to get it just right. He listens to the sound of the wood as he carves to determine the proper thickness. Later, the canoe gets a traditional paint job with calciferous seaweed to protect it from insects. But in order to revive Tepuke sailing, someone needs to teach the art of building the large seafaring canoes and the art of navigating the open ocean by wind and waves and stars. This knowledge resides in the memories of only a few elders. My name's Ross Hepworth. I grew up in the Solomons. I think it's uh, in the Polynesian culture, there are only certain people who actually did the sailing and uh, knew how to navigate. Today, that is basically one man, Chief Kavea, is the only one who knows how to do it. But he's an amazing man because he has some customs and traditional things that he uses while he's navigating. And I've actually seen him use it, and I've been very, very surprised. One is directing the weather. So if there's a thunderstorm in the front of the canoe, 
he can move that thunderstorm to the side with his little bamboo stick. So it's absolutely amazing. And I say this because I've actually experienced him. He was on my boat and we were coming to bad weather and he's actually moved that rain away from us. And when he put his stick down, the rain came back. So he put it up again and the rain moved away. And he did that for seven hours on our crossing. And I was absolutely amazed that he still had the ability. So I asked him, I said, are you going to pass that on? And he said, yes, my firstborn son will get it if he's interested. So I hope that custom stays alive because it's uh, very important when you're traveling on a traditional canoe that you do have some control of the weather. He was chanting in his local dialect, whatever it was. I never understood what he was saying, but he, he did the chant and, yeah, you just saw the clouds, storm clouds move in a different direction. Much of the navigation and boat building was traditionally done by men, but many women, including Joanne, helped to build and sail the canoes. Now, as only a few elders are left who still hold this knowledge, it will take both men and women to restore it. My role will be to tell stories and to give advice. I will give advice to the women and the young girls and the young boys and the young men. I will be able to tell them what to do when they have a tepuki canoe. Here, everyone pulls together to keep the children fed and the community solid. Men and women each have their own designated place in this social order. But now, women may have to go beyond their traditional roles in order to perpetuate tradition. I will be able to tell them when you go to the bush that you have a coconut, that you take coconuts, that you must bring the husk, bury it in the sand, and it will rot, and it will be ready to make the rope, the senet rope. And I will show the young girls how to weave the tepula, the woven things that they cover the tepuke, so that the sun doesn't bake it and make it crack. And at the time of the rain, the boys and girls need to bring salt and wash the tepuki down with salt so that it doesn't rot. And they need to paint it again with limo. The young boys need to go to the reef and collect white limo seaweed and pound it into paint. And then paint it on the hull so that the insects won't eat it. So all these things are going to be part of having a canoe again and I will be able to advise them. The work of reviving boat building and navigation that's being done by the Vakotomako project goes beyond the practicalities. It's part of the wealth of the islands, not easily measured by the yardstick called gross national product. Aseri Yalangono works for the Ministry of Education of the Solomon Islands. Poverty is a concept from the developed world. People poor because they don't earn money, right? However, in the rural areas, one person might not earn a dollar, but still lives. Nobody pays them in terms of a dollar, right? You don't buy fish, you don't buy potatoes. They might be using kerosene for lighting, but if you don't have kerosene, you won't die. You can do without. You can go to bed, and the next day you wake up, when there's light, then you go to your work they will look for money if they wish to buy something, but they don't look for money for the sake of looking for money. So it is quite a difference living in a developed country and then coming back to the Solomon Islands. You can see this difference there. They're certainly not poor because they can live, they can eat. The Vakatomako project built several Tapuke canoes in the 1990s, Aseri was at the launching of the first canoe. The ministry was invited to attend this launching of the sailing of the Tepuke from the Tafs to Nifiloli in the reefs. Janet Lonomaha was on one of these canoes. She remembers how it felt to be sailing on Tepuke again, just like when she got married so long ago. In the moonlight, oh, it was extremely bright, a full moon. And I was very happy when we sailed into the bay in the morning. When the sails were put up and I felt the wind, I was very happy. And all the canoes were alongside. The wind blew and we sailed in. 
Then there was a very big custom greeting when we reached Nifiloli. And that made me very happy too, to actually see that and be a part of that. But these elder women also have concerns that their window of opportunity to revive the old ways may be closing. I think that many of those girls and boys today, if they were sailing back and forth on the Tepuke, they would be afraid. They don't have a father to go with them like I did when I was young. So the young people would be afraid unless they had their father with them. The fathers give a tepuki to their sons, and those sons give it to their sons, and those sons give it to their sons. But that didn't happen. There was no handover. So we grab at our adopted life, but the real life was left behind. Custom is not something you read from a book. You're born with it. The work of building new Tapuki canoes and maintaining the small fleet that has already been built is taking a back seat to the daily concerns of making a living. There's a lot of work involved because the rope, for example, is the coconut husk. And they have to take the green coconut, bury it in the sea, leave it there for a couple of weeks, and then they have to plait and make the rope. And it's very tedious, time-consuming. Nowadays, everybody finds it easier to do something else rather than make the rope and make the sail. It doesn't take a lot of money, but there's got to be some money so that if they spend a year and a half building a voyaging canoe, you know, or taking some voyages, that their families are not suffering. Maybe Mimi cares more about the canoes than the islanders do. It's easy to challenge what she's doing and see it as disjointed. But Aseri says that sometimes it takes an outsider perspective to appreciate one's own culture. It probably requires motivation from other people, researchers and people who try to assist to go back into history and say, if you don't preserve it, it is bound to be lost. The biggest problem that we face, the islanders need to realize that in, in order to maintain the culture, they are receiving some benefit from it. There's a lot of work needs to be done in the country in preserving cultural way of life. And this is one aspect of it. We can say and maybe 50 years' time, 100 years' time, and said it was a good thing that this was recorded. There's a common perception in our world that the old people in traditional cultures care about the old ways, and young people are jumping to get out into the big city. But here, None of the islanders, young or old, seem very interested in the fast-paced life in the capital, Honiara, a big city by Solomon Island standards. But city life changes islanders, whether they like it or not. Joanne's granddaughter, Frida Cooper, moved to Honiara for her studies. She's seeing firsthand what can happen to young people when they come here. It's like you are floating, so it's better for us to continue to maintain it. If we are not very careful of it, people will forget about it. But Frida's brother Eddie is frustrated. When he graduates, his plan is to start a shipping business for the islands using modern fuel-run ships. I want to be a manager of a company, like shipping company, because, you know, my province is very far from the capital in Honiara, so we have problems with transport since I was born. We have been going through this type of problems. So I prefer to have a shipping company to service my people. That's my dream. The reality is that both solutions are foundering now. The economy is just not strong enough to keep pace with skyrocketing global fuel costs. Yet the Tapuke canoes are no longer a part of the island economy. So how to address the practical problem of island-to-island transportation? Okay, Lata, you follow me. I'm going to fly, and when you see me flapping my wings, and when I give a cry, then you will know that's the koilo tree you need to cut for your Tepuke. So the Teubi bird flew ahead 
and Lata followed behind. And when Lata saw the Teubi flap its wings and cry around the tree, then Lata knew that was the one he would cut down to make the Tepuke. Reviving this traditional culture will rely on those who remember it. And among these islanders, the women are creating the foundation for that. I think to myself, maybe they will be the ones who will solve this problem they're facing. But how I think is so very different, I see that as well. Maybe if I lived on that island, I'd be able to see it as Pacific Islanders often do, and as Lata did. Life as one long continuum, one day after the next. Life coming in with the tide and out again with the next good wind. The Story of Lata was produced for Outer Voices by Stephanie Geyer-Stevens. Written by Claire Schoen and Stephanie Geyer-Stevens. Mix engineer was Robin Weiss for sound imagery. Field sound recordists were Jack Chance and Carlos Tejada. Voiceovers were performed by Hualani Duncan, Nelson Ka'ai, Carol Lovell, Holly Mavai, and Puanani Rogers. Narration was recorded at Rieger World, Berkeley, California. Voiceovers were recorded at KVIN, Kapa'a, Hawaii. Major underwriting for the story of Lata was provided by the Ford Foundation. Additional funding was provided by Kimo Campbell and Terry Kazi. Air transportation sponsored by Air Pacific, Fiji's international airline. Many thanks go to everyone who helped to make our work possible. Wantok Radio FM Honiara, the crew of the Gershon 2, Dr. Mimi George, Mef Wyeth, Jeffrey Cooper, the Hepworth family, Ezekiel Dye, Paul Vaya, Patricia George, the provincial government of Temotu province, and the people of Taumako and Nifiloli Islands. The story of Lata is dedicated to the memory of Jocelyn Saleh. The story of Lata is the fourth in a series of profiles of women leaders in Southeast Asia and the Pacific Islands by Outer Voices. For more information about Outer Voices, please visit our website, www.outervoices.org. For a copy of a CD of this program, please call us at 415-497-0563. I'm Stephanie Geyer-Stevens. Thanks for listening.